0: It was a movie called Hey Ram, which was about Nathuram Godse. I believe. All I remember about that movie is how they showcase Hindu-Muslim riots in Bengal. Uh, and this was happening slightly before independence happened.
1: Okay. You see, uh, when this is when uh, Jinnah gave a call for direct action day. And he made this famous uh, statement that we also now have a pistol. He wanted to demonstrate to the British that Hindus and Muslims could not stay together. The cabinet mission plan had give, proposed a confederation and he wanted to make sure that the British accede to the Muslim League's demand for creation of Pakistan. In fact, Jinnah was asked this question from Delhi, he was going to Karachi. He was asked that what message do you give for the Indian Muslims who are stayed behind? He said, I expect them to be good citizens of India and I expect that the Congress government will look after them. Now, the follow-up question was, if a Hindu Congress government can look after the Muslims, then why did you create Pakistan? His reply is not known. That if you now say that the Congress, Hindu Congress government will look after the Muslims,
0: Pakistan. We've done a ton of episodes when it comes to Indian history, some episodes on world history as well. This one is a special on the history of Pakistan. I'm fully aware that we have a huge Pakistani audience that watches this show as well. I'm aware that we have an international audience from other countries as well. I've tried bringing out a very objective side of Pakistani history through one of the world's experts on this subject. He's written multiple books on this subject. He's one of the most respected geopolitical commentators in the modern day his name is Tilak Deveshar he's going to be back on the show repeatedly because that's the quality of the conversations that we've had with him this is a two-part special lots more episodes with this legend are on their way but for now let's learn about the history of Pakistan starting from pre-independence India here we go this is a knowledge-packed history special of TRS I've wanted to do this podcast for a while and I was waiting for the right kind of guest Tilak Deveshar sir welcome to TRS thank you so much for having me here I've heard so much about you I've watched your shows Pleasure to be here. No, no, it's our honor. Uh, India and Pakistan have been celebrating intellectualism, have been celebrating history, have been celebrating the subject of geopolitics a lot over the last two years. Uh, Three years ago, I wouldn't have even made videos like this. I wouldn't have gone so in-depth into geopolitics, but the audiences have changed now. And everyone wants to know From the subject experts, I guarantee you, you're going to get more views than a Bollywood diva interview. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So, welcome to TRS, sir. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, Uh, I think we should begin this episode by doing a bit of Pakistan History 101. Starting, I would like to believe in 1947, but you know, there is some pre-1947 Pakistan history. So I'll actually let you lead the way because you've written multiple books on the subject. You've written multiple uh, reports on present-day Pakistan. That's what we'll cover in the next episode. But sir, where do we begin the story of Pakistan? Keeping in mind that there's also Pakistani viewers watching this. What up, y'all? But uh, we're back. Okay. So uh,
1: let me begin about my interest in Pakistan. Sure. You know, people ask me, how come, why are you so... Uh, interested in Pakistan. And I became, started getting interested in Pakistan because of the stories that my father, who was an Indian Air Force officer, used to tell us about two Pakistan Air Force officers who were his flight commanders during the Second World War, flying Spitfires and hurricanes over Burma. And these two officers went on to head the Pakistan Air Force, A. Marshal asghar Khan and A. Marshal Noor Khan. Wow. And so I, you know, that the name struck then. Then the Wars of 65 and 1971 heightened my curiosity. In college and university, I studied the partition of India and the freedom struggle. And I was pretty much into uh, Pakistan. And just so happened during my professional life, I had an opportunity to study uh, Pakistan in great detail. And after I retired, I've read even more on Pakistan than I did while I was in service. And what struck me was that most of the the attention in India gets focused on Indo-Pak relations the stop go Indo Pak relations, the terrorism, the LOC cross border violations, the nuclear issue. But the real and serious problems of Pakistan tend to get lost in India. So I have studied Pakistan beyond the beaten track and gone into issues like why is Pakistan such a troubled and troublesome state? Are its problems of recent origin? Or they go into the movement that led to the creation of Pakistan.
0: Do you think that the average everyday Pakistani looks at their country in the same manner that you're speaking about? It?
1: No. In fact, that is why my books have got a lot of appreciation in Pakistan because they realize for the first time where they are coming from. My first book, Pakistan Quoting the Abbas, a Pakistani intellectual wrote in a newspaper that this is easily the best book on Pakistan. Because for the first, not for the first time, at least there was an Indian author who had a very objective view and was telling them what they should have known, but they didn't.
0: You do know that this is the audio version of that, right? And this is going to reach out to like a whole new audience. So More the mirier. Okay.
1: Because, you know, this is something which they don't realize themselves. So I've studied, so all my books are focused basically to bring about a new perspective and a deeper understanding of what's going wrong with Pakistan. So that was my, you know, uh, the, the, the beginning of how I got interested in Pakistan. Okay. And you're right, you know, that Pakistan, for me, the real problems in Pakistan start even before its creation, in the Pakistan movement, the movement that led to the creation of Pakistan. Today's Pakistan's fault lines, you know, genetic fault lines, ethnic fault lines, political fault lines, security fault lines all start from even before the creation of Pakistan.
0: We're taught a version of history in our history books. And I've had lots of historians as well as geopolitical observers on the show who say that we've probably been taught a morphed version of history which celebrates certain individuals, which uh, kind of rejects other individuals. Now, I'll give you what I remember about Pakistani history from my schooling in India. I'd also love to know what someone my age would have studied in Pakistan about their own history and about India. We know that uh, Jinnah was a freedom fighter. Uh, What we're taught in uh, school is that uh, he was kind of very in sync with working with the leaders of the Indian freedom struggle that we hear about in India. That's uh, Gandhiji, Jawaharlal Nehru, etc. And... Eventually, somewhere in the 1930s or 40s, there was this whole uh, rise of his political party. I can't remember the name. The All-Indian Muslim League. Yeah, uh, the Muslim League. And that was where this idea of Pakistan began. Uh, and eventually in 1947, because of the differences between the Indian faction and his faction, it led to the creation of Pakistan. Now, there have also been some conspiracy theories that have been brought up on the show, which say that both Gandhi Ji as well as Jawaharlal Nehru, as well as uh, Jinnah, were all sort of agents of the British. And uh, you, would you like to say anything about this?
1: Uh, if you don't mind. Yeah, it's sure. a very simplistic and distorted view of what actually happened.
0: Okay. Yeah, sure. Please correct me, I'm Amir. You know, like, the whole movement for
1: Pakistan started by a section of the Muslim elite in North India because they had lost power and patronage due to the long decline of the Mughal Empire and the growing influence of the British, right? So long as this Muslim elite in the North had power and patronage, they did not think they were a minority. They started feeling a minority when they no longer enjoyed that power and patronage because Mughals had declined on one side, the Marathas had risen and the British were moving from the East. And when this talk started of representative government, one man, one vote, then they suddenly realized, we are in a minority. We will be overwhelmed by the Hindu majority if every man has a vote. That is when this feeling of being minority, persecution, and we want special protection started. The first person who articulated this was Sayyid Ahmed Khan in the 1890s. And he said, it's like, I have four dice. I mean, the Hindus have four dice and I have only one. Obviously, the man with the four dice is going to win. The same thing was done by Jinnah in the 1940s. When even Gandhiji said, we are brothers. He said, but you have three dice and I have only one.
0: Quantitatively speaking, is that accurate?
1: Though? Yes, yes. This is like, actually what happened. Okay. See, nobody knew how a representative government will actually work. They presume that all Hindus will vote for a Hindu and all Muslims will vote for a Muslim. What happens then? Hmm. Because they're in a minority, the Hindus would always win. So that was one, let's say one bucket. The feeling of alienation of being a minority among the Muslims. Mm. Okay. The second bucket is the British. Now there, initially when the uh, movement for uh, self-government, etc. was uh, increasing, you know, restiveness amongst the uh, Hindus after 1957, They started started the Congress. So A.O. Hume set up the Congress that it will be a debating society where the Hindus can let off steam. But just so happens that Muslims too started gravitating towards the Congress. Then the British realized, this is a problem. Because they had identified after 1857 that were the Hindus and Muslims to come together, it is the end of the British Raj. Therefore, the differences between the Hindus and Muslims, the social differences, the cultural differences must be escalated to the political and constitutional level. That will keep them apart. This is roughly when? After 1857. Oh, okay. So, okay. Wow. Right? Go on. So, this led finally to three events in the early 1900s. First was the partition of Bengal. Because Bengal was where the real, uh, you know, movement had started. So when you partition into East and West Bengal, the Muslim portion went, that you created one barrier between the Hindus and Muslims. Then in 1906, they set up the All India Muslim League, which was done at the behest of the British. They funded it also. It was set up in Dhaka. And the third was separate electorates. So Muslims will vote for Muslims, Hindus will vote for Muslims. These three developments made sure that the problems or the, difficult, the differences between Hindus and Muslims are escalated to the political and constitutional level. And they haven't looked back since then. The Jinnah's issue was that he realized that in the Congress Party, so long as Gandhiji, so long as Pandit Nehru, so long as other leaders were there, he didn't have a chance at leadership. So 1930s onwards, with the egging of the British, he started moving away from the Congress. In fact, at one time, he was considered the best brand ambassador for Hindu-Muslim unity. This was the title given to him. But then he started moving away when he realized this. And after 19, for example, in the 1937 elections, the Muslim League won no seats. And the Congress had formed governments in various... But you know, that is a a different story. But this is how the differences of Hindus and Muslims were raised or escalated to the constitutional and political level by these two uh, developments.
0: Okay. Uh, Before I let you proceed on this actual timeline... I have another cinematic question for you, which is that if the British didn't actually further this Hindu-Muslim divide, and if we were entirely one country today, like if Akhand Bharat was an actual thing, do you think that would have led to a better present and or future for all of us collectively, Pakistan, India, Bangladesh, Sri Lanka, Nepal? You see, uh, (laughs) that's a very theoretical question. You know, you can go either way. I'm, you can go very either way. I'm sure you've toyed with this idea at some point. Yeah,
1: I, I, you know, being a historian, uh, my background is history. I look at what is or what how okay. was. Okay. You know, to uh, speculate, it's very difficult. There are so many imponderables. Okay. Cool. So one has to look at the way the history developed. You know, once these three developments took place, 1905, 1906, 1909, separate electorates, the die was cast. It was going to happen. It was going to happen. All right. You know, because the... Uh, once... You know, you tell the Muslim that you're going to vote only for the Muslim. And the Hindus only go to the Islam. So, the divide na. Then you have the Muslim League. And what the British did was, and what Jinnah did was, the real fight for India's independence was between the Congress and the British. The Muslim League was a the beneficiary. They got Pakistan on a platter. Hmm. You know, till 1947, till the creation of Pakistan, no Muslim League person ever went to jail for demanding Pakistan. Gandhiji, Pandit Nehru, Zawallabai Patel, Maulana Azad, spent years, decades in prison for demanding uh, India, for demanding freedom. No one from Muslim League. The only time, in fact, Jinnah went to jail or spent one night in prison was during the annual Cambridge-Oxford boat race in London for unruly behavior. This was way back in the 1890s. That's the only time he spent a night in the clink. No no Muslim League leader went to... uh, Whatever sacrifices they talk about happened once the partition plan was announced, the at cliff line and even before that, when the killings started, yeah, Hindu-Muslim killings in Punjab, that's when um, you know they, they suffered. But for demanding Pakistan, they, nobody in the Muslim League went to. That had a different adverse consequence, which I'll tell you later on.
0: You know, another source of historical perspective that at least my generation has is movies. There was a movie called Heram which was about Nathuram Godse, I believe. I can't remember it. All I remember about that movie is how they showcase Hindu-Muslim riots in Bengal. Uh, and this was happening slightly before independence happened. So probably, I'd assume, between 1945 and 1947.
1: Am I right yeah, in saying this that? is 1946. Okay. You see, uh, when, this is when uh, Jinnah gave a call for direct action day. And he made this famous uh, statement that we also now have a pistol. He wanted to demonstrate to the British that Hindus and Muslims could not stay together. The cabinet mission plan had proposed a confederation. And he wanted to make sure that the British accede to the Muslim League's demand for
0: creation of Pakistan. I have to pause you there a little bit. And I have to go one layer deep and ask you as an observer of Jinnah... uh, What was his actual intention behind this? Did he genuinely believe that, that the Muslims need a separate country? Or, as the conspiracy theorists say, is it actually just a chase for being remembered according to the history books? No, he actually, by 1940, you see, when he came back
1: uh, after the 37 elections, he went back for his practice uh, in the UK. Then he came back. And he immediately changed his dress, for example. He started wearing the karkul cap. He started wearing an achkan and... Basically, an Islamized kind of a you know his persona change, and in 1940, at the annual convocation of the All India Muslim League in Lahore, when he articulated this thing um, that you know Hindus and Muslims are two separate nations, and the Muslims are by no means a minority, and therefore they must have their own homeland. And he didn't talk about Pakistan then, but that this is called the Lahore Resolution, and then you had somebody. Uh, in Cambridge, uh, you know, who gave the acronym of Pakistan. And so for Jinnah, it was not something, um, you know, uh, what you had mentioned. He actually started believing in it,
0: came to it late, but actually started believing in it. Okay. Fair. Okay. Because all sorts of people have all sorts of theories on this. Like we've had this whole conspiracy theory vibe on the show. I think the audiences are at a point where they want the details of history from someone like yourself. So I'll let you proceed with the story.
1: So uh, before this, where was I when you... 1946, I believe. Yeah. So direct action day, you know, when Jinnah wanted to uh, convince the British that Hindus and Muslims cannot be together. So then there were these riots in Calcutta, where about 4,000 people died. Bulk of them were Hindus. And then Gandhiji went on a fast on to death. And then peace was established. So he wanted to establish this. Mm. That's what happened. Interestingly, in his uh, a book written by the son of uh, Iskandar Mirza, he mentions that Jinnah had contacted, that time he was the Deputy Commissioner of Peshawar, uh, Iskandar Mirza. And he told him that in case the British do not concede Pakistan, then we will have to demonstrate the need for Pakistan by the will of the Muslims. Therefore, he asked him to organize tribal lashkars, this is in February 1947, to start attacking British and to create communal riots in the north Frontier province. So that the British would be forced to concede. But then the British had conceded Pakistan. So the Lashkars were not used then. But they were used subsequently as raiders to attack
0: Kashmir. Can you give some context on the word Lashkars?
1: Lashkar is a group, uh, an army or a... Uh, it's a tribal uh, conglomeration of tribal um, uh, uh, people they constitute into a lashkar. You can call them a militia, you can call them whatever. It's the traditional word used in lashkar. Okay. They fight with guns? Yeah, yeah. Guns, okay. swords, whatever they have. Okay. You know. All right. So, uh, Pashtuns. Gotcha. So, these lashkars were then organized by Iskandar Mirza. They were not used to riot in uh, NWFP, but they were subsequently used in October uh, 47 to attack uh, Kashmir. So, Jinnah mm-hmm. was, you know, all his life he preached constitutionalism. He did not in fact even agree with Gandhiji's movement of non, uh, non-cooperation, non you know, or civil disobedience. Yet when it came to the crunch, it was he who gave the orders for Direct Action Day, which led to the killings in Calcutta, as I mentioned, and wanted Iskandar Mirza to create
0: uh, riots in, uh, in WFP. It was basically, a, maybe in a way, the immediate cause to create Pakistan finally. Yeah. But they probably sensed that, okay, the British are going to leave let's have this as the final straw in the possibility of pakistan yeah so the 46 was not that the
1: british were going to leave when he ordered direct action in calcutta that is the time when the cabinet mission plan had given a plan for a confederation of india and pakistan you know they were not going to concede pakistan so he wanted to demonstrate the need for pakistan by creating these riots in calcutta okay that was one similarly by february 47 again the british had not conceded uh, Pakistan. So he told his kingdom, "Now you be ready. You to create this. So it
0: was to force the British to concede Pakistan. That was the planning. But were the British thinking of leaving the subcontinent already at this point? Yeah. You see. Uh, again,
1: it's a very interesting. Um, in nineteen till nineteen forty-six, the imperial staff, imperial general staff, believed that a united India would suit British interests after they eventually withdrew from India. Okay. But by forty-seven they changed their point of view because then they felt that by keeping Pakistan alone, that Pakistan was the more strategically important area of the subcontinent. Why? Because A, closer to the Soviet Union. By the time end of World War II, the Soviet Union was pulling in a different direction. And by that time, the, so, uh, it was realized the wells of power, as it was called, the oil of the Middle East. They wanted somebody close enough over there. So the Suez Canal, the Middle East oil and all that. So they felt, and this is documented, that their interests of the British Empire would be served best by having a friendly Pakistan. With India, the problem was that they was suspect. They suspected Pandit Nehru of being too much of a socialist. And that he could have developed good relations, or friendly relations with the Soviet Union. Whereas the case of Jinnah and the Muslim League, there was no question of ever becoming friendly uh, with the Soviet Union. So they felt that their interests could be served best. So therefore, you know, I mean, this is going to be a long answer. No, go for it. Kalat, for example, as Baluchistan was, you know, Balka Baluchistan was called. Initially, Jinnah, Mountbatten and the Khan of Kalat agreed that Kalat would be an independent country in 1947. Damn... Okay. I just wrote an article, it was published in the uh, Times. of China. It's part of my book, you know, on my second, third book. So they agreed on, and the Khan of Kalat declared independence. And there was an embassy of Kalat in Karachi. He set up a bicameral legislature, upper house and lower house. It was then that the British told him in October 47, that do not concede the independence of Kalat. make the Khan of Kalat sign the instrument of accession. Because by that time they realized that they had to strengthen Pakistan because if Baluchistan or Kalat was not part of, then they will not have a border with Iran, and they wanted it because of uh, you know the oil wells and uh, so then Jinnah started uh, telling the Khan of Kalat, who incidentally was uh, Jinnah was a lawyer of Khan of Kalat, who argued the case for Kalat's independence to the British to the Cabinet Mission Plan. Kalat had funded Jinnah and funded the Muslim League. But Jinnah went against him and said, you better sign the instrument of accession. When he refused, the Pakistan army sort of picked him up, invaded Kalat in March 47, picked him up, possibly brought him to Karachi and made him sign the instrument of accession. So this is one. What was
0: their logic of wanting a separate country,
1: Kalat? Because it was an independent country in 1838, and this was reaffirmed by Pakistan in 1876 treaty that it will be. So Kalat, unlike the other princely states of India, was not regarded as, uh, you know, it was dealt with by the external affairs department of uh, the British, rather than the internal department. Like Nepal, like Bhutan, like Sikkim, Kalat was on that basis. Damn. It was an independent country, you know. So, when this Khan said, look, I want to be, uh, since British paramountcy, you know, you're ending it, I want to be independent. And uh, Jinnah said, fine, the British said, fine. And so they signed a standstill agreement in which
0: and they acceded to Kalat's independence on the basis of which the Khan issued a proclamation. Sir, I got to pause you, take you into 2023 and then we can return to that timeline. In 2023, is the culture of this region that was formerly called Kalat, is it still very different from the rest of Pakistan?
1: Yes. You see, there are two uh, people who inhabit uh, the the Baloch and the Brahvi. The Bravi are very similar in language to the Tamils. What? (laughs) There are so many common words between Tamil and Bravi. Okay. You know, so at one, I mean, you know, migration took place. or what took place, there is a lot of similarity. Okay. So the, the, the Baloch, in fact, the reason for this, I mean, how do you say it? Because in 1948, as soon as Kalat was forcibly annexed, the brother of the Khan, Abdul Karim, rose in rebellion. It was not a very successful rebellion, but it just showed that the Baloch did not accept merger with Pakistan. And there had been a succession of insurgencies, 1948, 1958, 1962, 1973, 77. And the current insurgency was started off in 2005 and is continuing for the last 18 years. For the same reason. Yeah. They did not accept the forcible accession uh, with Pakistan. In fact, in the lower house, which was created by the Khan... There's a very famous speech of Ghosbaks Bajinjo. It's there on the net. where you say that if we are forced, and the Pakistan forces to, uh, you know, uh, merge us with Pakistan, then every Baloch son will write in rebellion against Pakistan. And this is what is happening today.
0: And this is basically just culture speaking up, right? Like, hey, these people have a different culture than us. And I'm probably sure there's some historical rivalry also.
1: You know, see, language... Culture, ethnicity, the problem of Pakistan, again, we're moving into a different area, but let me just spend two minutes on this. You see, the reason why Pakistan has not been able to establish an overarching Pakistani identity is that the areas that became part of Pakistan had never before existed as a single country in the East and the West. They never before existed as a single country. Even the more compact West Pakistan, they they were historic states with their own ethnicity, their own culture, their own language. Never before existed together. In fact, Wali Khan, the Pashtun leader, when he was asked in the National Assembly, made this statement that I've been a Pashtun for 4,000 years, a Muslim for 1,300, and a Pakistani only for 40. So for him, his ethnic identity of being a Pashtun was far more important than religion or being a Pakistani. Similarly for the Sindhis, similarly for the Baloch. You know, so this has been one of the major issues in Pakistan that they have not been able to... What Jinnah and thereafter people tried to do was to superimpose a religious Islamic identity on these diverse ethnicities. Now, religion was strong enough, Islam was strong enough to create Pakistan by raising communal frenzy. But it was not glue to keep the various ethnicities together only by the name of religion. In fact, Molana Azad, in a very good, um, very famous interview that he had uh, with a magazine called Chattan, and his differences with Jinnah was precisely this. He said the Muslim League is demanding Pakistan in the name of Islam. But nowhere in the Quran or in Islam does it say that people of one religion will form our nation. In fact, a com is all the people living there. And the loyalty of people in India, the Muslims in India, are to their sect, loyalties is to their sect, not to Islam per se. And this is what happened. Uh, the way Pakistan has developed, you have so much of sectarianism because people are more loyal, whether they are Barelvi, whether they are, um, uh, you know, uh, what do you call, um, deobandis Ali Hadis. So there
0: is loyalties to different sects. Is the average Pakistani aware of this?
1: He knows it because on his daily life, he's taught that if you're a Dehubandi, then the Barilvi is, uh, you know, a kafir or Ehli Hadith. In fact, there's a, one of the best documents to command of Pakistan was the Munir Commission report, uh, which was set up after the anti Ahmadiyya riots in 1953 in Lahore. So this Chief Justice Munir and one Justice Kayani, they set up this report and it's called the Munir Commission report. So he asked the ulemas who wanted Ahmadis to be declared non-Muslim. He said, fine. If you want somebody to be declared a non-Muslim, you must first of all know who is a Muslim. Only then can you say that this man is not a Muslim. And they write, and this is documented, they say much to our regret, they asked about 16 or 20 well, Olimaqs of different sects, the who is a Muslim. And none of them could agree on the definition of a Muslim. Each one defined it as per his sect. And they write that if you accept the definition of A, Then, for those 15 other people, you go out of the pale of Islam. They will treat you as kafir. So, there is no definition of being who is a Muslim. This is what Azad was telling Jinnah. Yet, by creating communal frenzy, the fear of the Hindu.
0: The fear of the Hindu. Yeah, you know,
1: that you will be old by Hindu. Okay. You know, that's why they created the country, but then they couldn't keep it together in the name of Islam. Bangladesh broke away because for the Bengalis, language. Was far more important part of their identity than religion, but even till today, when they raised this Islam in danger in the frontier, for example, the Pashtuns laughed at them. They were ninety six percent Muslims. They said, "We are ninety six percent, and you think Islam is in danger because of four percent Hindus and Sikhs?" So the Muslim link didn't, you know, did very badly in the NWFU, which was the largest Muslim province in India. in Thirty seven but by 47 the situation had changed and the very interesting thing of the pashtuns and NWFP which we can talk about uh, whenever you uh, later on in the show or now or now? okay <laughs> fine so in the last elections 46 elections guess who won the elections in the province it was the congress khudaikhitbatgar government and it was the chief minister was dr khansa who was the brother of abdul gaffar khan now this was a terrible thing for the for the british were concerned because if Pakistan was to be viable, then this Muslim majority province had to be a part of Pakistan, not to be beholden to the, as I said, Hindu Congress. So Lord Ismay, who was Mountbatten's chief of staff, called it a bastard situation, where the majority Muslims had voted for the Congress. So they said this verdict has to be upturned, and to do that, even though elections were held in '46, they said we have to have a referendum whether the assembly, whether the people want Pakistan or India. Even, because they were afraid. You see, this uh, resolution of uh, partition was given to each professional assembly to whether they wanted to exceed to India, whether they wanted to exceed to Pakistan. They feared that if this resolution was given to the NWFP assembly, they would vote for India because it was a Congress Kudai Khidmatgar majority. They no, no, we must have a referendum. For reasons that I am not uh, fully aware of, the Congress agreed to this. The Congress leadership in Delhi agreed to this. So the Congress in NWFP had opposed it, but the Congress agreed to it. And, and this is when Abdul Gaffar Khan told Gandhiji, You have thrown us to the wolves.
0: Can we dive a little bit deeper into why the Congress in Delhi was for it? Could there have been geopolitical reasons or pressure from the British saying, Hey, you better agree to this? Because these uh, are hard. I, I think
1: it, I, I'm not. I mean, I am not in a a position to tell you why. But I think by that time, the Congress Party wanted the British to leave. And Mountbatten put his foot down. That, look, if you don't accept this referendum, the whole partition plan is off. I am leaving. So I think they were sort of blackmailed into accepting. There was also a question of distance, you know. Pakistan in between, NWFP and all that. But if there could be East and West Pakistan... East and West India could have been a thing. There could have been a different... Well, it's a historical fact of, you know... But this is... Abdul Gaffar Khan was so upset. He told Gandhiji, you've thrown us to the wolves. You know, we've thrown them
0: Was that an accurate statement based on how the future panned out? Yeah. Why?
1: Because the way the Muslim League was... You see, the Muslim League... Jinnah's thing was there are only two nationalities. Hindus and Muslims. There are two successors to the British, the Congress and the Muslim League. If the if they accepted Pashtun as a the nationality, then his whole scheme would be rendered infructuous. So therefore, he dismissed Khan Saab's government within a week of uh, Pakistan's coming uh, into, you know, when Pakistan was created. And even though the Khan brothers saw allegiance to Pakistan, Abdul Gaffar Khan spent more years in jail in Pakistan than he did while now with another British. Really? Yeah. He, he They couldn't accept the Pashtun. And because he demanded that, look, he said, look, we've just had an election in '46 on the basis of Hindu, uh, India and Pakistan. If you want to have a referendum, we're not scared of a referendum. But then it, it must be on the issue of Pashtunistan. To give us the option of Pashtunistan, Pashtun territory, where the Pashtuns, unified Pashtuns all over British India are able to have their own self-governance. Mountbatten rejected that. It can only be in India and Pakistan. So then they boycotted the referendum. Once they boycotted the referendum, naturally the majority of the people, it was a limited franchise. It was not that everybody voted. It was a very limited franchise. And 90% of that, I don't know, forget the percentage, of
0: those people then voted for Pakistan and it was a foregone conclusion. Uh, Just for better understanding, I want to ask you about Afghanistan as well because Afghanistan has a massive Pashtun population. That's where this whole Pashtunistan uh, narrative is coming up in the modern day as well that the Pashtuns in Afghanistan are brotherly with the Pashtuns in Pakistan
1: They're the same ethnic stock
0: it's 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 as if you're taking people of the same religion and the same culture and dividing modern day West Bengal into northern West Bengal and southern west bengal it's, it's that's a sort of equivalent
1: well in a very crude way but <laughs> <laughs> uh, with the, with the Pashtuns you see uh, the um, uh, Pashtuns were able to consolidate themselves under Ahmachah Durrani in 1757. Ahmachah Abdali. They became Durrani later on. And his territories were right up to Attak. He invaded India. So this he consolidated the Pashtun area. His successors, and because the British had gotten into the act by then, so they in 1893 had this, what's called the Duran Line. And the Duran Line drew a line across the heart of the Pashtuns leaving some in Afghanistan and bulk in the uh, territory of then the British Empire. What was the reason the line was created? Because they wanted a settled border. You see, they had the settled districts, uh, which was NWFP. Then there was these tribal areas, what then were became the federally administered tribal areas called FATA. These were the tribes which were not under the British system. And they valued their independence so much. Like Waziristan, for example, almost 50% of the British army in India, was stationed in Waziristan during the Second World War because they just couldn't control those tribes. The maximum number of expeditions were into Waziristan, North and South Waziristan. They couldn't control those tribes. So they wanted to demarcate that this side is Afghanistan and this side is British India. What is modern day Waziristan? It was part of the one of the tribal districts, now part of the Khyber Pakhtunkhwa province. Okay. And Khabar Bakhtunga was formerly the NWFB.
0: So uh, when you talk about the British Raj and this Akhand Bharat map, the British were not able to actually take over all of Afghanistan, which is why Afghanistan is a separate country today. Yeah. And they didn't take over Afghanistan because… right. Was-
1: the first Ooh. Afghan war, if you remember, uh, when uh, 16,000 army had uh, to change the Shah, they wanted to replace the Shah with their own uh, nominee so that the Russian… You see, the big threat for- to the British Empire in India was a potential Russian invasion, which would then damage the jewel in the crown. So they wanted to make sure that Afghanistan would be a buffer state between the Russian Empire and the British Empire. And they wanted their own Amir over there. So this first uh, British, uh, first uh, you know Anglo-Afghan war, or the first Afghan war, an army of 16,000 went. Initially, they were successful. This has been a, a, a part of history throughout that any army can easily invade Afghanistan. They can't retain it. In two years' time, only one British army officer survived and came riding into Jalalabad. And when he was uh, major brand, when he was asked, where is the army, army of the Indus? He said, I am the army. He only one, the Afghans had killed everybody else and he was the one survivor. Similarly, in the second Afghan war, the British, very successful initially, Later on, there to beat a history retreat. And finally, in the third Afghan war in the 1919s, Afghanistan was able to get back their foreign policy control under King Amanullah, And that's when Britain realized that, look, this is not our best. You know, let's leave it. So even the tribal areas. So to coming back, you know, it was this, uh, the Pashtuns, my, my fourth book is called The Pashtuns, A Contested History. I talk about Pashtuns on both sides of the Durand line. And Pakistan's policy, again, we are moving much ahead, but Pakistan's policy towards Afghanistan is based on their insecurity that a strong government in Kabul will one day dispense with the Durand Line and claim territory up to Attak, that is up to Punjab. That, you know, this whole area is a Pashtun area, it's part of the territory of Ahmed Chadurani. If you ask an Afghan, a Pashtun, he will say, Ekhtar of Afghanistan, Ustar of Hindustan, Kaha say Aya Pakistan. Uh-huh. And you know, this, this misnomer of Afghan and Pashtun, the Persians used to call, refer to the Pashtuns as Afghan or Afghana. So, Afghan and Pashtun is interchangeable as far as the Pashtuns are concerned. You call them Afghan, Pashtun, it's the same thing. In India, they came to be called Pathans. But it's, a, it's an interchangeable uh, uh, thing.
0: They're also really friendly dudes. That's what I was like. If you ever meet a Pashtun guy, yeah. always up for a conversation. Very hospitable. Yeah. Uh, very different. And I know that there is this ancient rivalry with Punjabis. Is that accurate? Is that an accurate statement? It still is in Pakistan. It still is a Punjabi Pashtun, uh, you know,
1: uh, the tension, the ethnic tension. It's been uh, moderated. There's a lot of now Pashtun army officers in the Pakistan army. Okay. Trade. Karachi is the largest Pashtun city, you know, much more than Peshawar, or Jalalabad, or Kabul, or Kandhar. So, a lot of population has moved around. But yes, that ethnic rivalry uh, sort of remains. Because, you know, the Punjabi, because he's 52% of Pakistan's population, you know, the arrogance, Mm. uh, the... um, Swag. Swag, yeah. So, he thinks he can dominate over everybody. Now, Pashtun is not a guy you want to push. Mm. You know, there is a very famous Pashtun saying that the... Pashtun who took revenge after a hundred years, said, I took it too quickly.
0: <laughs>
1: you know, so this uh, revenge, pushed that pushed, uh, What? Uh, you know, generation after generation. Oh, okay. You know, it lasts. And they Pashtuns have a social code called Pashtunwali, the way of the Pashtun, where revenge is a critical portion. You know, uh, for the most important thing with the Pashtuns, honor. Like the Rajputs. Yeah. So for them, honor is everything. And to take revenge, if you are dishonored, and if the Pashtun does not take revenge, he is considered as begarath, you know, the man without honor. So he will do anything to take revenge. Time and space doesn't make a difference. If not he, his son, maybe not his, generation after generation. And the territory doesn't have to be Afghanistan, Pakistan. People have taken revenge in Australia, people have taken revenge in the UK. How? When they've gone there and they found uska descendant, uska descendant is there. Damn. So for the Pashtun, revenge is far more important, not the laws of the country they're in. Wow. You know, to defend his honor, it's perfectly normal for him to kill somebody. Uh, I mean, this this was the uh, trait. Of course, things have changed because of modernization, urbanization. They've traveled abroad and things like that. But this is the basic instinct. Other thing about, as revenge is one, there is also this other thing about melmastia, you know, which is called an hospitality and nanwati of refuge. If an enemy comes to a Pashtun and says, I want refuge, he won't be able to refuse him. He'll have to look after him, give him shelter, give him food and only when he leaves his territory will you try and kill him.
0: <laughs>
1: okay. You know, that's why there is so much written about the Pashtuns but the British, they just couldn't understand. A system which is so out of sync with Western values, where law and order is the most important thing, they couldn't comprehend, what are these guys? So wild tribes, you know, all the kind of epithets you can find, because they're not seeing the Pashtun from his perspective. You see, we've had so many invasions in India, but where did they all come through? All the invaders came through Afghanistan, devastating the land, Mm. before they came to India. So the Afghans, the Pashtuns, have been so used to invasions that they've developed their own uh, mechanisms how to live a hardy life, a very tough life because of the invasions that they faced. Because invaders came right up to Punjab, some even uh, further down, and then they went back again through Afghanistan,
0: devastating the land. Okay. Imagine the amount of generational trauma that exists in the yeah. modern day Afghan. Yeah. The modern-day Pashtun. Yeah. I want to take you back to that timeline we were yeah. on. Sorry, go ahead. No, that's fine. Yeah. This is what podcasts are. answer. Uh, I'm going to ask you one quick question about modern-day Pakistan slash the Pashtuns. You can give me a quick answer and then we can go back. There are these conspiracy theory-oriented narratives online that uh, Pakistan might be on the brink of a civil war. I don't know how true that is. But is it the same... Pashtun versus Punjabi rivalry that's at the core of this thought? And is that even true? Is Pakistan actually at the brink of some sort of a civil war? A short answer to that is civil war is too strong a word. Okay. Right?
1: There is an insurgency in Balochistan. The problem with the Baloch is they have 44% of the land area of Pakistan but about 5% of the population. They're not a critical mass. You know, like the Bengalis were East Pakistan. They were a critical mass and again the, the tribal system in balochistan so the tribes are of course the now the educated middle class baloch are getting a handle on the nationalist movement so but there is an insurgency, the fifth insurgency in balochistan okay the sindhis too are not very comfortable with the punjabi domination the exploitation but the real threat to pakistan will ultimately come if the pashtuns were to unite you know now you have the Pashtun Nationalist Party, like the Awami National Party. You have the Pashtun Kwa Mili Awami Party, which is in Balochistan. You see, again, the British were very smart imperialists. Balochistan today, the northern portion of Balochistan is Pashtun. When they got that area from the um, uh, Amir in Kabul, they treated it as a commissioner's province, but merged it with the uh, Baloch tribal areas and called the whole thing as British Balochistan. Not, didn't merge it with the settled districts of Pashtun. So even today, a lot of people get confused. Are ya, how are the Pashtuns in Balochistan? It's a Baloch. No, till Quetta and north of Quetta is actually a Pashtun area. So the Pashtuns are a critical mass. They have a sort of imagination of Pashtunistan, their own area which they can govern, but they are divided, you know, in tribal bases. Now even extreme Pashtun uh, force in Afghanistan called the Taliban. And their methodology is not something which the Pashtuns of Pakistan really care about. But then you also have the Pashtun Taha'fuz movement, if you heard of it, PTM, which are these young Pashtuns, civil rights activists, who are protesting that we don't want to be treated as cannon fodder anymore for Pakistan's foreign policy objectives. I mean, this, against the Soviets, who were the jihadis? They were all Pashtuns. They're the ones who died. War on terror. Again, it was the Pashtuns. So there is this non-violent civil rights movement which harks back to some extent to ghaffar Khan and his Khudai Khitmat Khan. And they have a different conception of what the Pashtuns are. Then you have the Taliban who have not accepted the Durand line. They said it's a line which divides brothers. Mm. In some parts, they have uprooted the uh, fence and much to the annoyance of Pakistan because they thought the Taliban would accept the Durand line and this international border will be Settled once and for
0: all. Okay, so basically the line that we see on maps, on world maps, the line that divides Afghanistan and Pakistan, that's not the actual version of what's happening. That's what you're saying? That is the
1: Durand line. According to Pakistan, it is the international border. When they left, the British also said this is the international border. But legally, if you go down deep, again, I've done that in my book. If you want, I can digress to that. Pakistan knows that this is not the international border. Therefore, they are keen for the Taliban. Thrice in the 90s, they asked the Taliban, please recognize the Durand line. And the Taliban said, we can't do it. Even now, after the Taliban took over Kabul in August 21, they said, recognize the Durand line, and the
0: Taliban have refused. So the Indian perspective on Pakistani border disputes is just POK. We see a particular map of India and a particular map of Pakistan. They see a different version of Pakistan and a different version of India. We don't even think about the kind of issues they have with Afghanistan. Yeah. But there's actually issues on both their borders. Yep. Like both their neighboring countries don't accept the borders that Pakistan claims it has. Yeah. Now continue, sir. Would you like to expand on this? Or would you like to go back to the timeline? It's up to you.
1: No. So let's finish this uh, sure. Durand line thing. So after the third Afghan war, there were two treaties, 1919 in Rahul Pini and 21 in the Treaty of Kabul. Now that's a very interesting treaty. He talks about this Anglo. You see, there is no treaty between Afghanistan and Pakistan post-47 on the border. The last treaty of 1921, it's called the Indo-Afghan border. So even today, the border between Pakistan and Afghanistan is called the Indo-Afghan border of the 1921 treaty. Now, the 21 treaty specified that after three years in existence, either of the two sides, that is the British India. Or Afghanistan can rescind this treaty by giving 12 months' notice. In 1949, there was a Loya Jirga which was held by the Afghan. And they said, We do away with all treaties, including the Durand Line, the Treaty of Gandamak and Rawalpindi, everything. We do away with all this. So, as far as the Afghans are concerned, there is no Durand Line, there is no demarcated border. Pakistan knows this. Pakistan knows that legally there is no border. Because they have not even tried to re-establish it after forty-seven, that after Pakistan came into existence, they could have negotiated with the uh, Afghan government and said, this is demarcate the border. They didn't do it. And the Afghans, so the Loya Jirga said there is no border, no government in Afghanistan since 1949. Whether it was the Monarchy, whether it was the uh, uh, Mohammed Daoud, whether it was the PDPA or the Mujahideen, or Taliban-1, or Taliban currently has, or even Karzai or uh, uh, Ghani, they've said there is no border. We cannot accept the border between Afghanistan and Pakistan. Therefore, Pakistan is so keen. Therefore, they want a dependent, weak government in Kabul, which does not raise the issue of the Durand line. And their entire foreign policy is geared towards keeping Afghanistan and Kabul weak and dependent on Pakistan. Now, the Taliban are a different kettle of fish. Pakistan thought that these people would be grateful to us. B.S.A.L. say we have supported them in the insurgency. Now when they come into power, the first thing they will do is recognize the Durand line. But the Taliban or the Pashtuns are beholden to nobody. They said, yes, thank you so much. Now there's another concept of the Pashtuns, which is Vatan. You know, as far as the Pashtuns are concerned, or the Pashtun refugees who took refuge in Pakistan, they are in their own Vatan, they are in their own homeland. But this is the territories of Ahmad Shah Durrani. Hmm. We may be in Pakistan today. We are grateful to Pakistan, but this is ours. So, neither the Taliban, especially, they will not accept the Duran Line. So, for Pakistan, it's a big security challenge. So, the TTP, the Tehrike Taliban Pakistan, which is the one in Pakistan, is now wanting. To his, you know, the uh, f- uh, tribal district that I talked about earlier has been merged with uh, Khyber Pakhtunkhwa. They want it to be demerged, and they want to establish their own writ in that. So Pakistan actually faces a pincer movement from the Pashtuns. The Taliban have not accepted the Durand Line, which challenges the sovereignty of Pakistan. And the TTP on this side of the Durand Line says, we want our own territory. We want our own uh, uh, area. And they have set up provinces, shadow governments uh, called Valaya. In Pakhtun uh, uh, Pakhtunkhwa, and Fatah, and even now in Baluchistan and in Punjab, so it's a pincer movement that Pakistan faces, and if they don't handle it imaginatively, you know, there's trouble brewing just under the surface. So to come back to your original question of a civil war, the problem I feel can happen from anywhere, but most likely it is the Pashtuns if they get their act together. Okay, wow, so it gets more intense. So, you know, it's called a polycrisis, where several crises come together in space and time, making any crisis far more serious than what the original crisis was.
0: You know, my original thought with this episode was that we'll do Pakistan history right from pre-independence up till at least Kargil. Maybe we'll end this particular episode by just talking about the last few days of Jinnah. Uh, and how Pakistan remembers him in the modern day. Uh, and then we'll move on to modern post-independence Pakistan history and the present and the future. So, but would you like to close this Jinnah chapter now?
1: I'll I leave it to you. Well, whatever we want. See, before we close this
0: and the historical portion, I mentioned
1: right in the beginning, the genetic fault lines of Pakistan. It's very important for your viewers to understand that why is Pakistan today a troubled and troublesome state? You see, Jinnah, as I mentioned, he said Hindus and Muslims. But how do you get the Muslims to vote for you? Because in the areas that became West Pakistan, the Congress League was very weak. I mean, the Muslim League was very weak. In Punjab, there was a coalition government of Hindus, Muslims and Sikhs. In NWFP, there was a Congress government. Only in Sindh, was the Muslim League had a presence. Now, Jinnah was opposed to mass mobilization. He was opposed to land reform because bulk of his supporters were landlords. So how do you enthuse the Muslims to vote for you? Religion. So the slogan became, Pakistan ka matlab kya? And the answer was the Kalma la ila illallah. And in the 45-46 elections, they said this is a fight between, this is a fight for Islam. Even when the contest was between two Muslims, they said, one of the ka things Kuf- Or this is a fight between hak-o-batil, right and wrong. So he unleashed the genie of religion mm. at that time. And since then, Pakistan has not been able to put the genie back. Because once you unleash forces like this, ke Pakistan? Ka kya, then the Islamic parties, the religious parties got after it that you should be an Islamized state. For then, him to talk like he did in his famous August eleven speech, of the, you're free to go to your temples, you're free to go to your mosques, and you know, is it where? This is, this is uh, created on the basis of Islam, on the basis of two-nation theory. So then you have the objective resolution, anti ahmadiyya riots, Ahmadiyya has been declared non-Muslims, and finally, with Zia who started this whole process of Islamization. So one big genetic fault line in Pakistan, started Bhajana was the injection of religion
0: into politics. Uh, This was an example of using religion to unite a bunch of people and tell people that, listen, you guys need a separate country. But in the long term, this backfired in some ways. Absolutely. Because for a lot of the locals in Pakistan, they identify more as their ethnicities rather than their religions. Or at least historically, they did so. So uh,
1: just two days ago or yesterday, about 15 churches in Faisalabad have been burnt down on the basis of somebody was supposed to have done something you know, called blasphemous. So the mobs went on the rampage and they've burnt down so many churches, destroyed the cross and much of the chairing uh, of you know, uh, uh, volunteers of the Teri labbaik Party. So it's not going to stop. And this all tricks races back to that. So this is one major fault line that Pakistan has become so radicalized and so Islamized that it's a, you know, in the future, it'll be very difficult to pull back. I'll give you a very, an example, a very gruesome example. Some years ago in Okara, district Okara, there was a rural a gathering where the Malvi asked a question and a poor 14 year old boy raised his hand by mistake. Malvi said, Gusake oh rasool no, you've committed blasphemy. And the congregation also pounced on them. This poor boy felt so overwhelmed that he went in the nearby field. And using a fodder cutting machine, cut off his own hand, Off, came back and presented it to the, on a plate to the Malvi, and people cheered. It was such a gruesome act that the nation, which is the major daily, the English newspaper, wrote that if a person is willing to hurt himself in the name of religion, can you imagine what he would do to others? So, this is the kind of radicalization and Islamization that has gone on. Today, in the same city, same Mohalla, you have different kinds of mosques teaching. First thing they will say is that he is not the right thing. The Diobandi will be saying the Eli Hadith and the birilvis are… So, this kind of sectarianism, this kind of hatred is being created
0: even among the Muslim sects. So, you can imagine what is going to happen to the others, the minorities. Minorities are sitting ducks. Uh, what I've come to realize about the average urban Pakistani is that they're not that uh, extremist. But in saying that, what you said uh, prior to this, which is that if you make a country based on religion, eventually that thought is going to come back to bite you because in the modern day, uh, being secular is an important part of modern day countries. That's what I feel. Uh, please, you can disagree with me if you think I'm saying but not something. Not in the
1: case of Pakistan, of Pakistan what is secularism? In Pakistan. You know, they are a 98% Muslim country divided into various sects. Mm. And they are fed this daily dose. Not only in madrasas, in government schools. Okay. Through textbooks and uh, on sermons in the uh, in the mosque.
0: So, what's going on in I think the point I was making was that uh, I have met the urban elite of Pakistan the same way that I am the urban elite of India. Uh, when we meet, there's friendliness, there's brotherhood and then there's the masses who are uh, affected by what they see in the news media. They are affected by the original religious thoughts of Pakistan. They are the extremists but unfortunately this might be more than 99% of the country because we are just probably meeting the 1% that find the way to Dubai that find the way into content creation. Am I right? Would you like to correct me? Yeah, no, that's true. You see, it okay. depends on the milieu in which you meet a people. You meet them in Dubai, you meet them in London, you meet them in
1: the US. One. You meet them in Pakistan. It's a, it's a different uh, attitude because they're living in that milieu. Na? Day in and day out, day out, if you're bombarded. Look, I'll tell you something. Kaida, you know, like A for Apple, B for every child who goes to nursery, reads that. The Kaida, what I've seen myself, Zalim. And there's a photograph of a Sadhar. Man of a, five, a five-year-old boy, what do you think image he's going to have of a sadhar? Zalim. daku. There's a Hindu with a fat tone and a bodhi. So in the mind of a child, Hindus are Dakus. And that gets reinforced by the textbooks in government schools. There are studies carried out by Pakistani think tanks. The One very famous one called the subtle subversion by the Sustainable Policy Development Institute of Islamabad. They actually document what are the themes that are taught to children and how distorted, how they distort the version of history and things like Pakistan is for Muslims alone. Islam, Hindus, hatred against Hindus, Jews and Christians. They are the enemies of Pakistan, enemies of Islam. This is all document. This is actually being taught in Pakistani schools. Now this is something which people in India perhaps don't realize. I mean, I mentioned this in my book, that my book has been in the market for 2016. And no Pakistani has disputed. it. An intellectual has even called it as the best book on Pakistan. Because the the, the thinking Pakistani, and they realize what is going wrong with their society, and they are some brilliant uh, Pakistanis.
0: They're helpless, they're not able to go flow against the tide. I do have one burning question in my head and heart, which is that if we can do a bit of an exercise where you and me time travel back to 1947, okay? The partitions happening. M- many Muslims from India are going to Pakistan. Many Hindu, six Christians from Pakistan are probably moving to India. Why did the modern day Indian Muslim? Why did that person's ancestors or grandparents not choose to go to Pakistan? And then I have a vice versa version of that question as well. The Hindu Sikhs, Christians that are in Pakistan today, why did their grandparents or great-grandparents not take that call and go to India? That's one part of the question. I'll get to the second part. Later.
1: So, you know, uh, many more Muslims stayed back in India from all over India than those who actually went you know, the people who went, went with the hope and expectation that, you know, country created in the name of Islam and the kind of propaganda that the Muslim League had said, Pakistan ka matlab gya, as I mentioned, la ilaha illallah, you know, that it's a. So that they felt they were looking for the new Medina, as it were. You know, so that's why a lot of people went. Those who stayed back, I think probably couldn't go, maybe. Or they felt that, you know, we can do perhaps as well, if not better, in a secular MLU. Mm. As I mentioned, the sects, you know, different sects, Islam was, I mean, the Indian Muslims were not just a unified, uh, uh, you know, just on the basis of Islam. They were divided into different sects and they probably felt that they could do as well over here. In fact, Jinnah was asked this question when he was uh, deplaning from Karachi, he was going to, from Delhi, he was going to Karachi. So he was asked that, what message do you give for the Indian Muslims who are stayed behind? He said, I expect them to be good citizens of India and I expect that the Congress government will look after them. Now, the follow up question was if a Hindu Congress government can look after the Muslims, then why did you create Pakistan? His reply is not known. We don't know what he said. But this is the fundamental question that if you now say that the Congress, Hindu Congress government will look after the Muslims, the uh, root fir Pakistan?
0: Can you draw out a picture of the modern day non Muslim in Pakistan?
1: Pathetic. Very pathetic conditions.
0: Okay, because there's lots of narratives going around online. It's a lot of uh, comment section banter that talks about this. See, I'll tell you what's happening with people my age. Most urban people that I meet, okay, very rarely, are they um, out and out pro-Modi, at least the ones I meet. Maybe because I'm in media. My world in media is primarily anti-Modi. I don't know why that is. Now, there can be a thousand reasons. And their narrative uh, for being anti-Modi is that look how our Christians, Muslims and Sikhs are being treated. In India? In India. And I'm, I'm, I'm reeling narrative. This is not what I believe. Okay. Uh, because I get to talk to people like yourself. So I, I believe I get a more of a 360 degree perspective. Uh, you'll always find one person in that same room countering these people who are anti-Modi by saying that, hey... Do you know how non Muslims in Pakistan are treated? Like, if you think we are targeting uh, non Hindus here, go to the other side of the border. Uh, I would love for you to shed some light on both these arguments. See, on the
1: Indian side, there was a recent Pew survey. You may have seen it, Pew survey. 96% of the Muslims were asked, were, were happy that there were no restrictions on their um, uh, observance of their religion. 96%. 4% said moderately. 96% of the Muslims were satisfied. 90% of the same Muslims were said they were proud to be Indians. Right? So this propaganda is basically that. It's propaganda. It comes from the US. So somebody said, what is the situation in the US? 60% of African Americans said they had hindrance in pursuing their religions in the United States. So what is this people talking about? How can you compare? Well, 96% of the Muslims say they're happy you uh, unhappy? Mm. I also feel that... All and all, in, one, one more, if I let me... Jammu and Kashmir, there was uh, violence for so many decades. You know, uh, Since 1989, there was violence going on. Not one Muslim for other parts of India, actually when they said it was jihad, no Indian Muslim from other parts of India went to say it was jihad. Whereas Pakistan was shouting from the rooftops jihad in Kashmir, in Kashmir. Mein. Why? They're fully satisfied,
0: they're integrated into the country. Coming back to this question about the modern-day non-Muslim in Pakistan. Did their grandparents and great-grandparents choose to not move to India because they couldn't afford it? I'm sure that's one of the reasons because I believe that there's a massive tribal Hindu population. I, I'm using the word massive loosely
1: But Soda Rajputs are there on the border or between Rajasthan and... You see, again, when partition took place, a lot of people didn't know what it meant. I'll give you a personal example in the case of my wife's grandparents when this troubles and all started. So one of their relatives sent them a truck, they uh, said, we'll be back. So they just took the cow that they had, put that in that uh, thing, and one carpet ki, carpet ko you know, pani So that's all they came up with. Everything else was left as is. They didn't think they will be back. Jinnah, who had a house in Mumbai and a house in Delhi, he told the first Indian High Commissioner, Sri Prakash, that tell Nehru that I want to go back to Bombay. After having created Pakistan, because he said, I want to go and live in Bombay. It's a lovely house, I want to go and live there. So, a lot of people didn't think, troubles will, will, will blow over. Some people, yes, some people had properties. They didn't want to give up those properties. Some people, maybe they couldn't afford to move away. People said... You know, our purk here have been uh, interned here, been buried here, been bur- you know, their memories are here. How can we leave them and go?
0: Was it like the non-Muslim elite that chose to come to India?
1: You know, I haven't studied this, so I can't tell you whether it was an elite or not. But yes, a lot of the bulk of the land which was owned in Sindh was owned by the Hindus. So taking that as an example, yes, the elites would have left. And then... That was taken over subsequently.
0: Because probably the elites were educated enough to be able to see what's going to happen. Yeah, possible. And possible. the people who couldn't afford it, maybe they didn't have the know-how or the education. I, and I, their, I, their successors are probably suffering today. Yeah.
1: yeah.
0: Will India take any of these people? So the whole thing about CEA was precisely this, wasn't it?
1: That people who are persecuted in the neighborhood. You know. Uh, Sh- shed some light. Yeah, like, you know, the, the Hindus the christians the sikhs who are persecuted in the neighborhood can come and accelerate citizenship not that they'll get citizenship on arrival it'll be just an accelerated it doesn't mean the other people who have come their citizenship is going to be jeopardized but that this will be accelerated okay mm-hmm. that that was the whole uh, the whole idea now you see if you're a muslim majority country already and then you want refuge so it's different than being a minority in that particular country and wanting refuge and that
0: was the whole rationale behind CAA Okay. Uh, where does CA stand today? in twenty twenty? <laughs> I'm not sure. I think uh, there was a lot of, you know, Shaheen Bagh and things like that. There was a lot of agitation. I'm not sure whether the rules have been notified or not. I'm not sure. Okay. Because again, the, the urban narrative of CA was that it was an anti-Muslim uh, movement. Where the current government uh, is against the modern-day Indian Muslim. But
1: it, that would have been so if the normal track of somebody applying for citizenship in India a Muslim, had been closed. That's not been closed. Okay. That continues as it is. You know, there is no... So, again, fake narrative. It's easy to scare people.
0: Mmm. Demography of
1: Kashmir is being changed. Yeah.
0: You know, these are the kind of fake which are easy to sell. People are willing to believe the worst. Uh May I just say that you're a stellar guest? So <laughs> No, no, no. It's just, Down, feet on the ground. I'm enjoying the shit out of talking to (laughs) you, sir. It's crazy. Pardon my language, pardon the casualness of this conversation.
1: Uh, It's great because, you know, your curiosity is kindling my whatever little knowledge I have to explain to you and through you to the audience because I think it's important. It's important for people to know, you know, the past, what's happening in the present, and what are the really roots of. What is happening? So thank
0: you. thank you. You're you really drawing me out. No, no. I'm happy to learn from you, sir. I feel that this is the point of history. You understand the timeline of what actually happened connected to the modern day. Understand that, oh, these effed up things that are happening today happened because that happened at that point. No. And that's not what's taught to us in school. Uh, so I hope that people relearn a bit of modern day history through podcasts in general. No, I'm sure they will. Okay. Tilak, sir. We're going to be back with you. Next week on the show, but in five minutes in reality. So I'll see you in five minutes. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you, sir. That was part one of our special on Pakistani history. I want to apologize to anyone, especially in Pakistan, if you feel like this episode or any of the episodes that we've created on TRS have offended you in any way. That is not my intention. My intention with this show is just to deep dive into subject matter. I'm more than happy to actually host some Pakistani guests on my show. I will be doing a Dubai schedule soon. So especially if we have Pakistani listeners, uh, I'd love to read your comments in the comment section, interact with us. Not every Indian comment section will take you on and fight with you. We're basically cut from the same cloth, genetically speaking, historically speaking. Uh, I would love to hear some fantastic Pakistani perspectives as well. And of course, if we have international listeners, the same applies to you. Please send us your guest recommendations. What I will end this episode with is a preview on the next one where we speak about post-independence Pakistani history up till about 2005-ish. There will be many episodes that will come out featuring Tilak Deveshar. He's an amazing guest. He's a dream guest for me on this podcast. I'm always looking for new guest recommendations from you guys as well. So please tell me what you thought of this one. And tell me who else you'd like to see featured on TRS. We'll be back soon.